invite you to turn with me to Genesis 24. Genesis chapter 24, we'll look at the first nine verses uh, this morning. Genesis 24, 1 to 9. You can often tell what's really important to people by observing what it is that they hold on to toward the end of their years. When time has whittled us down, what do we consider as really essential? When we write our will, what do we provide for? When all the concerns have come and gone, what stands the test of time and continues to be the concern of our heart at the end of our life? Well, this morning in Genesis 24, we have a little glimpse of Abraham in those last years of his life. Here we see something of what mattered to this great man of faith that we've been uh, studying about for chapters and chapters now in Genesis. And as uh, we know, Abraham is called the friend of God. And so when we see what mattered to this great man of faith, this friend of God, we see something about what matters to God. So let's read it and see. Genesis 24, the first nine verses. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and to my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant asked him, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. The Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come with you, you then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of his master, Abraham, and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. I'd like to boil this uh, little text down to two truths that are very closely related. And the first is this, that marriage must honor God's covenant. Marriage must honor God's covenant. You know, there's some truths that the Bible subtly suggests to us. There's some truths that the Bible openly teaches us. But then there are some truths that the Bible virtually shouts in our faces 
And this is one of those. That marriage must honor God's covenant. In this true story, in Genesis 24, Abraham is concerned that his son Isaac needs a wife, and so he sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac. This is a long and familiar story to us, perhaps, the 67 verses in this chapter. We won't see it all this morning. Next week we'll see how it all works out. But this morning we need to see what is driving Abraham in this endeavor. Here we can examine the motivation by noting three stipulations that he gives to his servant as he gives him this assignment. And those three stipulations, I think, clearly teach us that the marriage of God's people must honor God's covenant. That's what's driving Abraham. That's what he holds precious here at the end of his life as he sends his servant on this this assignment. The first of those stipulations is, do not have Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. You see it there in verse 3? I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living. living. Do not take a Canaanite wife. Now the truth is, marrying a Canaanite woman would be a very smart political move. Marriage in this day was often used as a way of forming political alliances. Though he was a nomad, Abraham was now a pretty wealthy man. Imagine the foothold in this land of promise that he could gain if he would use his wealth and his influence and arrange a marriage between his son Isaac and the daughter of some prominent leader, some local king, some ruler, in the land of the Canaanites. Abimelech, for example, the foothold, the beginning of the, of, of the, the uh, life in the land of promise that he could gain for Isaac. What a smart political move. Oh, but Abraham knew about the Canaanites. He knew of the abominations practiced by the Canaanites, the wickedness which characterized their life and their religions. And he understood that God had promised that one day his descendants would dispossess the Canaanites from this land. God had given it to Abraham and his descendants. Therefore, to intermarry with the Canaanites would be to intermarry with the enemies of God. Would violate God's very covenant that he had made with Abraham. Oh, but marriage must honor God's covenant. Interestingly, this account was written down by Moses just before the people of God entered the land of Canaan to possess it eventually. They would certainly be tempted to intermarry with the Canaanites. They needed to be reminded that such a practice was not acceptable even to the father of our religion, to to Father Abraham, with whom the covenant was made. And so Abraham sent his servant back to his ancient homeland to seek a wife from Abraham's own relatives. You see it there in verse 4, Go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Now you may say, well, wait a minute. Those weren't exactly the people of God either. Didn't Abraham worship idols in the Ur of the Chaldees? Yes, he did. There's some truth in that. But you think, what did Abraham know? What options did he have available? One thing he knew was that in, 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 in Genesis 9, God had said, Cursed be the descendants of Ham. 
the Canaanites were the descendants of Ham. But blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Abraham's family were the descendants of Shem. You see, Abraham didn't exactly have a whole covenant community of godly young women to choose from for wife for his son. After all, he was the one man with whom God had made this covenant. But he knew that there were worshipers of Yahweh, of the Lord God, among his people. And he knew that those people were not under, under God's curse. And so Abraham pursued the best course he could have taken. Go back to my people and find a wife for my son. Why? He was trying to make sure that the marriage of Isaac would honor the covenant that God had made with him. Don't take a wife from the Canaanites, but go back and get a wife from my relatives. First stipulation. Second stipulation was, do not return Isaac to the ancient homeland. Do not return Isaac to the ancient homeland. You see the stipulation in verse 5 and 6. The servant asked him, well, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? And Abraham says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. And he repeats it in verse 8, only do not take my son back there. Here we see Abraham's firm commitment to God's covenant. Abraham is not just interested in getting a wife from his own kind of people, my relatives, folks like me back there. That's not all this is about. He is looking for a wife who will pursue God's covenant with his son. In other words, one who will, like Abraham had, pick up and leave her homeland and her family and come and live out her life in this land of promise, trusting God, waiting on God who has made a covenant and has promised to give them this land. So suppose the servant finds the perfect wife back there among Abraham's family, but she's just not willing to move. Well, then she's not the perfect wife for Isaac. For you are not to take my son back there, Abraham says. In other words, marriage must serve this covenant of God, not vice versa. You can't pursue God's covenant by leaving the place that God sent you. You will not be helped along in your faithfulness by being unfaithful to what God's given you to do. You will not help my son to live out the covenant promises by picking him up and denying the promises and sending him back where I came from. No, don't take my son back there. His marriage must honor God's covenant. Then there's a third principle laid down by Abraham, and that is, the way I would put it, is that God will provide. What, if this, what is the servant to do if he can't pick a Canaanite woman, no one from the ancient homeland will come, and he can't take, Abraham, uh, can't take Isaac back? Now what does he do? Well, in that case, Abraham says you're released from this vow. If God closes all the doors, then we will just sit and wait on the Lord. <laughs> That's what we'll do. 
God has often seemed to close all the doors. Think about Abraham's experience when he went up to sacrifice his son. How is this all going to work? This is impossible. God has told me contradictory things. I'll just obey him and I'll trust him to work it out. That's what. But we know that God will provide. He has promised. See it there in verse 7. The Lord, the God of, a of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land, who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying to your offspring, I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. You're released from your vow if, it, if there's no way to do it, but there will be a way. I have two reasons to believe that God will provide, Abraham says. Number one, God brought me to this land. There's no way he intends to send me back. And number two, when he brought me here, he promised to give me and my descendants this land. If I'm going to have descendants, Isaac has to have a wife. God will provide. Wait on the Lord. But make sure that this marriage reflects that covenant. Now, folks, this principle of our marriages honoring God's covenant is everywhere in the Bible. There are a few things that are said as forcefully as this throughout the Bible. And everywhere, God lays down this law. Because marriage is to honor my covenant, you will not marry outside my covenant. You will not marry an unbeliever. God said it to Israel when they were about to enter the land of promise in Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drive out, drives out before you many nations, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Solomon, wise as he was, years later thought he was wiser than God, and he decided that it was his opportunity to take many wives, and he took many wives from many lands and many kingdoms of many religions. He ignored God's command that marriage had to honor God's covenant. And in 1 Kings 11, we read of the consequences, the very things that Abraham feared. I quote, as Solomon grew old, his pagan wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Eventually, God sent his people into exile because of their unfaithfulness, what God called uh, uh, spiritual adultery. When they came back, and there was some renewal, yet in Ezra 9, after the people had returned from 70 years in Babylon, Ezra hears what they are doing, and I, I quote again from Ezra 9, The people of Israel have taken some of the daughters, their daughters, that is the daughters of the Canaanites, as, as wives for themselves and their sons, and they have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And when Ezra heard this, he tore his tunic and cloak, and he pulled hair from his head and beard, and he sat down appalled. Why? What has Ezra so distraught? Because it's on account of this violation of God's covenant. This violation of the sacredness of marriage for the people of God. It was on account of this that the flood came in Genesis 6. It was on account of this that Solomon's downfall came. It was on account of this that God sent judgment 
on Israel and they went into exile for 70 years. And now God's people are doing the same thing. Malachi, who wrote about the same time, describes God's condemnation of these holy marriages that were being formed again. In the most powerful words, listen as God speaks through Malachi. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god, an unbeliever. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. You see, the marriage of God's people must honor God's covenant. The New Testament says it only more clearly. In Ephesians 5, we see that the covenant connection spelled out more precisely. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the Savior. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to make her holy. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church, the apostle writes. Marriage is to honor God's covenant, for it was designed to be a mirror of the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. And so in 2 Corinthians 6, the Lord says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and the temple of idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 39, when the Lord's talking about young widows, he says, they're free to marry. She's free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. You see, the Bible is crystal clear. In the Old Testament, New Testament, God has designed the marriage covenant to mirror his covenant with his people. And therefore, we are only allowed ever to marry in the Lord. Only allowed to marry another believer. Only allowed to marry one who shares our commitment to Christ. Period. But as clear as those things are in the scripture, and they are crystal clear, and as often as they are repeated, and they are repeated often, it seems that many of God's people have now come to think that somehow those things are optional. Oh, Christian people are often concerned that their children marry within their own race. Something the Bible's totally unconcerned about. Absolutely nothing I can find in the Bible that says it's wrong for a black man to marry a white woman, or vice versa. Or Christians are often concerned that their children marry within their ethnic background, to marry somebody like us. Again, something that the Bible is totally unconcerned about. Or Christians are often concerned that their children marry in their class, 
in the same social strata and economic strata that we live. A concern which the Bible would disdain, by the way. But whether those nice young people just like us are truly disciples of the Lord Jesus, well, I'm amazed how many Christian families never get around to asking that question. Dear people, this has not become an obsolete truth. It was true for Abraham and Isaac. It's true for you. When Israel ignored it, it was their downfall. It will be your downfall if you ignore it. When Solomon ignored it, he came to ruin, and you're not wiser than Solomon. God forbids you and your children to marry unbelievers. That is always true. It has been true from the beginning. It will be true until the Lord comes. The fact that you have fallen madly in love with an unbeliever means nothing. It still is prohibited. Why? Because God designed marriage to honor his covenant. A marriage which violates the covenant can't honor it. A marriage which breaks the covenant can't accurately reflect. I preach this with some care. <laughs> I know some of you are married to unbelievers. I'm not addressing you who thought you were marrying a believer and found out later that he or she wasn't. My heart goes out to you. May God give you grace for every day. Nor am I addressing those where you both were unbelievers and God has wonderfully saved you. Now you find yourself in a hard situation. Take heart. God knows what he's doing. He's able to sustain you there. Nor am I really addressing those of you who have violated this principle and live to regret it with tears. You of all people know the seriousness of this truth. As the old covenanter James Fraser of Berea said, Repentance mends all things, but an ill-made marriage. No, I'm not addressing you. I'm speaking to you young people, and you parents of young people, who will certainly be tempted to think that somehow you are exempt from this truth. Why, he's just Mr. Wonderful. And he's from such a nice family. And they're so successful. And he drives a nice car. Or she's the perfect girl. She's beautiful. And she loves me so much. Not if she or he is not a believer. God forbids you to walk down that road. It is a violation of God's covenant. As one writer said so powerfully, I could not say it more powerfully myself, it is an act of betrayal of your children, even your children yet to be born, and their children, and their children's children. This is no private sin. This is the most public sin imaginable. You are killing your children and your descendants. By marrying a child of the devil, 
you are using the you are choosing the devil for your father-in-law and for your children's grandfather when in the covenant God has made you could have had and they could have had the God of Abraham instead this truth stands firm marriage must honor God's covenant there are no exceptions so because this is true we need to learn to imitate the diligence of Abraham which brings us to the second point simply so pursue godly marriages pursue godly marriages one of my favorite little essays is the account of what happened to all the signers of the Declaration of Independence as you probably know they all paid dearly many of them with their lives you see it's one thing to profess to believe something it's quite another to pledge and give your life, your fortune, and your sacred honor. Well, here in Genesis 24, we see Abraham putting his money where his mouth is. Here we see Abraham, who believed that marriage must honor God's covenant, now pursuing a godly marriage for Isaac. Oh, I know we think that parents have nothing to do with such decisions anymore, but that's just not true. Think of the things Abraham did as a parent to ensure that Isaac's marriage honored God's covenant. Well, the first one's not even in our text, but we can remember it. Think back a couple of chapters at Abraham's example of faithfulness. When he went and when he took Isaac to sacrifice him, Isaac had seen firsthand his father's allegiance to God. He knew personally that God came even before Abraham's most precious relationships. Isaac knew God was more important than he was to his father. But you see, that's the issue when you're pursuing a godly marriage. God's loyalty to God takes precedence over even the most precious relationship, which would be a marriage relationship. So I challenge you parents, do your children know? Have your children seen by your own example, watching your lifestyle, that God is absolutely first over all your relationships? Or when someday you begin to set them down and talk to them about their relationships that you think are unacceptable, will they ignore your words because they know God's not first in your relationships? It's very clear. Abraham pursued a godly marriage by the example of his own life. And then think of the influence that Abraham exerted to pursue a godly marriage for Isaac. Here in our text, we see that he assigned his senior advisor, his most experienced servant, to this matter. This was more important than his business concerns. 
This was more important than his financial affairs. Abraham would undoubtedly have gone in search of a wife himself if it were not for his age and infirmity. And this wasn't just some casual assignment. Well, why don't you go and see what you can do and, and do the best you can? Oh, no, he bound his servant with a sacred oath. In other words, this business is going to be conducted in the way that I have said, even if I die before you get back, you must do this. He used all his influence. And again, I challenge you parents. Our great problem is neglect, isn't it? We so easily fail to give attention to what's happening in our children's lives. We don't take time to even know who they're hanging out with sometimes. We don't take time to listen to what they're saying and what they're not saying. And folks, the things that we neglect will not feel the weight of our influence. So starting when your children are very young, I call you to exert all the influence you have, and it's a lot, to pursue godly marriages for your children. Finally, look at the resources Abraham committed to this matter. I know Abraham was a wealthy man, but this is still quite a venture. As we already said, he committed his most senior advisor, not just for a little day trip, this is a sizable trip back to his ancient homeland was four or five hundred miles on a camel. And speaking of camels, he sent ten of them. This is a whole caravan with lots of servants. He committed himself, Abraham did. He committed his wealth, as we'll see next time, gold nose rings for Rebecca, gold bracelets for Rebecca. Gifts of silver and gold, all kinds of gifts for the family when a wife is found. You see, Abraham pursued this matter of finding a godly wife for Isaac using all the means of his disposal, not just his influence, but his wealth. To what extent is your wealth and your influence committed to your son or daughter Marrying in the Lord? <coughs> or is your wealth and influence all committed to your business, your career, your houses and lands, while your kids can just find whoever they want? For me, this issue meant sending my kids 3,000 miles away to a, might I say, very expensive Christian college. Well, finding a godly spouse wasn't the only reason I sent them there. That was not even the primary reason. But it would have been reason enough. For like it or not, college years are the years when young people choose a husband or a wife. And at the very least, their college experience will form their attitudes toward romantic relationships. And where are the people who think like you think, who have the commitments that you have, who have the same hopes and dreams for their children, who have trained their children the way you've trained yours? Where are those people? There are places like Covenant College where I sent my kids, and some other schools just like that. Was it worth it? When I first came to the chapel and was struggling financially, someone told me very pointedly, 
The people in this church will never understand why you waste so much money to send your children 3,000 miles away to school while there are good schools right here. Well, I'm here to tell you I would do it all over again. I would spend twice as much if I had to. And that's my challenge to you parents. How much is a godly marriage for your son or daughter worth to you? How much of your influence and your wealth will you commit to that? Or is it more important to take a nice vacation or to drive a new car? Or do you consider it more prestigious to have a husky or a coog in the family? I call you to pursue with all the wealth and influence you've got in every way you can imagine. Pursue a godly marriage for your young people. It will determine so much for the rest of your life and for all eternity. Well, one more thing before we quit. What about the kids' responsibility? Where was Isaac in all of this? Well, very interestingly, the text doesn't say much of anything. Those were days of arranged marriages. This was Father Abraham's job, not Isaac's. Oh, but Isaac is already 40 years old, we find out in the next chapter. Don't tell me Isaac's never thought about this. Don't tell me he had never struggled with when am I going to get a wife. <laughs> Especially since his mother died. No, the end of the story will show that he waited with great expectation to see this caravan coming up the road with Rebecca. But he was submissive to his father. He pursued a godly marriage by pursuing godliness in regard to his father. I don't think this passage means to demand that arranged marriages have to be the way we do things. There are a lot of ways that people get married. But I do think that godly submission is to be learned by young people from Isaac's example. John Calvin writes, This example should be taken by us as a common rule to show that it is not lawful for the children of a family to contract marriage except with the consent of parents. And certainly, natural equity dictates that in a matter of such importance, children should depend upon the will of their parents. <laughs> Young people, I know you don't want to hear this, but I tell you this morning that God has established means by which he deals with us, and in this matter of marriage, he has established as the means, the primary means, your parents. You may think they're totally out of touch with the real world. In reality, they've lived in it longer than you have, and they're much more wary of its pitfalls than you are. 
And so, especially if you have godly parents, it is almost inconceivable that it might ever be God's will for you to disregard the counsel of godly parents go against their will in this matter of marriage. That's not likely to ever happen. No, I call you to pursue godliness in regard to your parents as a means of pursuing a godly marriage for yourself. Years ago, back in New Jersey, we had a dear Christian friend who had struggled every day of her life because she was married to an unbeliever. He was a really nice guy, successful businessman. He just did not share her most basic commitments. At the heart of their relationship, there was just no common ground. And therefore, their whole agenda for their family was different. And as it, the kids got older, it got more pointedly different. Since she had grown up in a Christian home, I knew her parents. And had gone to church every Sunday of her life, I was curious as to how she ever got into that situation. Didn't her parents just put their foot down and forbid her to date this man? That's what I would have done. Didn't her pastor warn her about the seriousness of the sin that she was contemplating to marry this unbelieving man? How could this have happened? I asked her. Her answer still sends chills up and down my spine. She looked me right in the eye and she said, No one ever said a word. Her parents were silent. Her pastor was tongue-tied. And without warning, she sold away her life and the life of her children, none of whom walk in the faith now. To marry her high school sweetheart. By God's grace, may that not happen at Wiser Lake Chapel. I don't plan to be silent about this. I will not knowingly help you enter a marriage which God forbids. And I hope that long before I ever need to be involved when your children are 6 and 8 and 11 and 16 and 20, you parents will be contending for these great truths set before us by Abraham that marriage must honor God's covenant always. And therefore, we will diligently and exclusively Pursue godly marriages. End of discussion. Amen. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, you're very gracious. For you've picked us up. Some of us have 
known such brokenness because of this, these truths that we've ignored. The word goes like a knife through our hearts because we know that we bear the consequences of bad choices. Thank you for your grace. Oh, but Lord, you've been more gracious than that. You've warned us, and you've explained to us, and you've told us what to do, and you give us examples that we might not keep passing the same mistakes to the next generation. Well, thank you, Lord, for this institution of marriage. It is so beautiful. It is so intricate. It is so full, and it is such a wonderful picture your relationship to us. And yet, Lord, it can never be those things if you're not part of it. So I pray for the young people. I pray for the parents of young people. I pray for this chapel family, for all the influence that we have toward one another. I ask you, Father, that you would take whatever steps are necessary to keep any of our young people from violating your covenant in their marriage. And grant to us wisdom and perseverance and diligence to use all the means at our disposal to promote that. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.